Welcome to the 49th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published in May and is receiving industry-wide praise. It can be ordered through his website, robertpearlmd.com. All proceeds from the book will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful, fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin this show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, the overall direction in the U.S. relative to COVID-19 is positive. For the first time in over two months, the country is now averaging fewer than 100,000 new cases per day. The number of deaths are also coming down, but they remain unacceptably high, with over 90% of the deaths occurring in unvaccinated individuals. And the news on booster shots is excellent, with Pfizer reporting a 95% effectiveness rate against the current Delta variant. In their study of 10,000 fully vaccinated individuals, there were 109 new cases of symptomatic COVID-19 infection in the 5,000 people who received a placebo booster, but only five cases among the 5,000 study subjects who received the real thing. Moreover, as expected, the booster was safe and well-tolerated. Previous studies had shown increased antibody levels in people following a booster dose, but this was the first time that they were able to prove that the third shot works and helps people avoid infection. Combining boosters with universal vaccination of people who had not received a dose in the past would allow our nation to eliminate almost all of the restrictions that are currently in place for people 12 and older. This week, the NIH presented data that showed not only was a booster shot highly effective in people who had received the one-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine, but it generated even higher immunity and antibody levels if that booster was an mRNA vaccine, the ones manufactured by Pfizer and Moderna. This question many listeners who received the J&J vaccine wanted to know is now answered. The J&J added booster shot is positive and using an mRNA vaccine is at least as good. Finally, vaccine mandates are proving very effective, although they are generating major unhappiness in some groups. The latest example is from New York City, where Mayor de Blasio has set an October 29th deadline for all city employees to receive at least their first shot or be placed on unpaid leave and potentially lose their jobs. The order impacts over 160,000 workers who currently are not 
mandated to have the vaccine, including police officers and firefighters, with only 70% of them partially or fully vaccinated at this point. Although this type of stringent mandate without the opportunity to opt out and be tested as an alternative already is in place for New York City's healthcare workers and teachers, and there there's a 96% compliance, multiple union leaders of these new groups are threatening that their members will quit instead. So far in other cities, these types of threats haven't been acted on by more than one to 2% of the workforce. We'll see if this time it's different in the Big Apple. Robbie, given all the positive data on boosters, where do we stand now and who is eligible for what vaccine? Jeremy, we've landed about where we predicted several episodes of Coronavirus The Truth ago. Both the FDA and CDC now have similar recommendations. More specifically, a booster is recommended for everyone 65 years or older. It's recommended for people living in a nursing facility. And it's recommended for anyone over the age of 50 at high risk due to an underlying health condition or secondary to high risk of exposure at work. And this would include teachers and people in the healthcare world. Moreover, anyone 18 and older would now become eligible to get a booster if they are at high risk of infection from underlying disease, or they are in a workplace situation where there's a high risk of exposure, even though the booster is not necessarily recommended for all the people in this category. Furthermore, anyone more than two months after the first J&J shot was encouraged to get a booster. And as we said earlier, it could be either the same vaccine or one of the mRNA vaccines. This ability to provide a different vaccine for the booster than the original one will make distribution and administration much simpler. Without that, there would have to be checking of records and multiple options available at all times or limited disease that people could come in. This approach would allow a vaccination site to offer one shot a day to whoever came for vaccination. The actual Pfizer and J&J vaccine boosters will be the same as the original, but the Moderna vaccine will be administered at half of the original dose. Robbie, with the data looking better and better following vaccination, what is the government doing relative to international travelers entering the U.S.? Jeremy, for the first time, all travelers coming from Mexico and Canada who have been fully vaccinated will be allowed entry into the U.S. at checkpoints. This is a shift from what has happened over the past 18 months, where only essential drivers were allowed to come across the border, bringing very specific types of supplies and products. And travelers from 33 countries, including China, India, and most of Europe, will be permitted to come to the US by air, and they'll be allowed to enter the country, assuming they can prove that they are fully vaccinated and have had a negative COVID-19 test within the past 72 hours. This easing of restrictions is a 180-degree reversal for President Biden, who earlier had warned against 
easing these restrictions in the face of the Delta variant. Balancing global relations, business interests, and public health is difficult when so much of the world remains unvaccinated and potential new variants could arise at any time. At the same time, complete safety is an illusion and the impact on Americans of excess restriction has proven problematic as well as the challenges of the disease itself. In parallel, the Biden administration responding to global pressure, particularly that coming from the WHO, continues to press Moderna to meet its obligations to COVAX, the international agency that supplies vaccine to the poorer countries around the world. To date, Moderna has sold almost all of its vaccine to wealthier countries that pay significantly more for each dose than the poorer nations do. A top Biden official, David Kessler, the former head of the FDA and now the chief science officer, threatened Moderna with more aggressive governmental action should it not comply in the near future with its commitment to COVAX to sell its vaccine at not-for-profit prices to these poor countries. This tension among wealthier nations between meeting the needs of a country's population and that of the world is accelerating in the context of booster shots for the affluent and nothing for billions of other people around the globe. Moderna defends its actions by pointing out that it has legal contractual obligations to these wealthier nations, and that simultaneously, while it meets those obligations, is investing in new facilities to increase vaccine manufacturing and production. Jeremy, as we approach our 50th program of Coronavirus, The Truth, I want to ask you, as you look back at the past 18 months, what has surprised you the most? I think there are three things that have surprised me the most. Uh, the first is that there's still so much uncertainty and debate around the origins of the virus. At the beginning of the pandemic, I thought much more work into finding this out with certainty as a way to help prevent future pandemics would have been done. The second is the political division around the pandemic. This should not have been a surprise to me, but it was. Uh, when we first heard about the virus in China and other countries, there were some serious uh, concerns over the virus. And I thought that maybe once it inevitably reached the United States, it would have been much more of a 9-11 type moment that united the nation around a tragedy. Sadly, the opposite was true and the pandemic, along with its handling, has been highly politicized and only increased the division in this country. The final and most surprising thing to me is the number of times that you and I had thought we were almost done with the pandemic and saw the light at the end of the tunnel. There have been about four different times where you and I thought the pandemic was almost over. If you would have told me in March of 2020 that we would still be dealing with the pandemic today and to the extent that we were dealing with it, I would have found that very hard to believe. If you would have told me in October 2020 that we would have gone through anything we went through in the past 18 months, I would have thought you were crazy. Robbie, as you know, Colin Powell died this past week after being vaccinated against COVID-19, but before getting his booster shot. Some are arguing this means vaccines do not work. Others are saying that this is just an elderly person passing away. What can we learn from his story? Jeremy, first, let me say that General Powell was an American hero. 
His book on leadership was one of the best I read early in my career. I remember well his admonition that the general eats last after he's sure his troops are fed. If all leaders made certain that the needs of their followers were met before they focused on their own, more companies and nations would be successful than they are today. In terms of his clinical course, there are three lessons we can extract. The first is that the vaccine is 95% effective, but that means that one in 20 or so deaths will be among vaccinated people. The COVID-19 vaccines do reduce the risk of people becoming infected, but not 100%. According to the CDC, the risk of becoming infected is seven times higher for people who are unvaccinated compared to individuals who are. And in terms of hospitalization and death, the difference is 11 times greater in those who are unvaccinated. The second lesson from General Powell's story is that people who are older with medical conditions that impact immunity are at much greater risk of dying. In his case, he had a blood cancer called multiple myeloma, which affects the plasma cells of the body. These white cells produce the antibodies which we use to fight infection. When they become cancerous, they not only stop functioning, but increase in number, compromising the production of other blood cells. It is in this part of the population with severe medical problems that the vaccine provides the lowest immunity. And for that reason, the final lesson is that everyone who meets the CDC guidelines, particularly those who are older with an associated medical problem or high risk of exposure should get the booster to raise their body's immunity levels. Jeremy, there's no way to know whether in General Powell's case, he died as a result of his body not producing the antibodies in the first place, or whether his immunity ebbed over time. But what we can take away from his story is that everyone, particularly people at higher risk, should get vaccinated and receive their boosters as soon as possible. Ironically, General Powell was scheduled to receive a booster this week. To date, only 7,178 people who are fully vaccinated have died from a breakthrough infection. That's one individual in every 26,000 fully vaccinated Americans at a rate of 0.0. 0.04%. It's not zero, but it's relatively close. Robbie, today you published a provocative piece for Forbes uh, pointing out that President Biden only has three choices. Why did you write it and what is that trio of options? Jeremy, I wrote the article because I worry that the current plan to end this pandemic won't be effective. The president has said that he will be mandating vaccines for all companies with 100 or more employees, but he hasn't committed to a specific date when it would be implemented, how it will be monitored, and the penalties that would result for companies that fail to comply. And without the details, I worry that the threat will have limited impact. He has committed dollars to schools to catch up on the education lost. But he hasn't said whether students should have to be vaccinated 
in order to attend in person. And he's created surge response teams to go into the areas of the country with the highest rates of infection and the most overwhelmed hospitals. But why wait for the crisis? We can predict when they will happen weeks before hospital admissions and deaths soar. Why not take strong action to minimize transmission earlier? Even intervening two weeks sooner would reduce the number of cases and deaths in half due to the rapid exponential rate of spread that we see with the Delta variant. As I wrote, President Biden only has three choices. First, he could put teeth into mandatory vaccination. And in doing so, I believe that we could end the pandemic. Second, he could put in place a plan for mandatory social distancing in any state or geography where cases were soaring. And this would allow us to flatten the curve in these areas before the virus overwhelmed the community was an approach we used at the start of the pandemic. Or he can keep the current plan. But if he's gonna do that, I believe that he needs to tell people why. He can tell them that it's the partisanship and divided nature of our country. But he also would need to acknowledge that before our nation reaches herd immunity, as a result of people becoming infected rather than through vaccination, 100,000 to 200,000 more Americans will die. None of these options are painless, but I believe that clarity and honesty are the keys to establishing trust and that the vagueness of the current plan is problematic. I wrote the piece to encourage the president to step forward and lead more effectively as the commander in chief. And I encourage, as I did in the Forbes article, all Americans to demand this level of specificity and transparency. Robbie, given the need to reach 90% immunity for all Americans, what's new on the vaccination front for uh, younger kids? Jeremy, we're moving forward rapidly. Data is being submitted to the FDA on a continual basis for children age five to 11 that shows effectiveness. Today, Moderna announced that its clinical trial for this age group had positive results with excellent antibody generation and minimal side effects. Previously, Pfizer had announced similar optimistic findings, although the details for both companies have yet to be published or publicly released. Anticipation of having an effective and safe vaccine for this age group in the near future, the Biden administration has obtained vaccine commitments for manufacturers, enough to vaccinate all children in this age range. And they'll make the pediatric doses available to 25,000 pediatricians and primary care sites, as well as 10,000 pharmacies, rather than expecting kids to come to large vaccination centers as we have with adults. Smaller needles and reduced doses will be used compared to the adult administration. And to date, we, the government has already obtained enough of the Pfizer vaccine for the country's 28 million children 
in this age group. Although the danger of dying for kids five to 11 is small, vaccinating this segment of the population is a high priority for the country, according to Dr. Fauci. Since kids in this age group become infected as often as adults, half of the time in asymptomatic ways, and can spread it to others at much higher risk. How successful this effort will be still is uncertain, since according to a survey from the COVID States Projects, 60% of parents of children in this age group have concerns about the vaccine, both its efficacy and long-term safety, and as many as a third have said that they are doubtful they will give it to their children. The decision on emergency use authorization is expected from the FDA the first week in November. Figuring out how to reduce transmission and keeping schools open for in-person education can't come soon enough. Data from Los Angeles has shown how much school closures have negatively impacted kids' learning. The LA Times looked at student scores and concluded that the problems have become great. When it comes to reading and math assessment, performance in all student demographics have declined. The gap between Black and Latino students when compared to white and Asian students grew by as much as 26% based on the measures that were compared. This educational decline is likely to have major negative impact for decades and possibly generations to come, despite the efforts that are being put in place now to ameliorate it. Robbie, age is a factor with COVID-19 mortality rates. How have vaccines impacted that relationship? Despite the high rate of vaccination among people aged 65 and over, that cohort of people still have the highest rate of dying. More specifically, per 100,000 vaccinated people, Deaths in people over the age of 80 are 11, while in the 65 to 79-year-old group, they're only 2.4. And it's even less, less than one in age 50 to 64, and close to zero for those who are younger. But before you think that this means that the vaccine doesn't work, remember that for every 100,000 people over the age of 80, the mortality is 54 rather than 11 for the vaccinated. For those 65 to 79, it's 36, not two for the vaccinated. And for those 50 to 64, it's 13, not less than one, which it is for the vaccinated. These numbers aren't surprising. They're exactly what we would expect for a vaccine with a 90% efficacy and they're dramatically better than anything we would have hoped one year ago. What's surprising to me is that the outcomes from these vaccines is so much better in terms of how well they work and their safety, how well they're tolerated, than we even dreamed 12 months ago. And yet, the hesitancy in this country remains a major problem for us to be able to put this pandemic in the rearview mirror. 
Robbie, our good news segment is valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. What's good this week? Of course, the best news continues to be the tremendous success of the booster vaccines. But an interesting finding is relative to where in the United States the vaccination rate is the highest. Those who follow this type of data, Jeremy, are likely to guess Vermont or Massachusetts, but they'd be wrong. The answer is Puerto Rico. It's not a state, it's an unincorporated territory of the United States. But on this island, 81% of individuals are fully vaccinated compared to only 66% across the 50 US states. And Puerto Rico has only four new cases each day per 100,000 people. And that's a fraction of almost anything we're seeing in the 50 US states. Achieving this level of vaccination is difficult to accomplish. Puerto Rico is a relatively poor geography, and it's five times larger in size than Vermont. Although there are many factors, including the weather that may contribute to this low rate of disease, various commenters have pointed out that the lack of political bickering is a huge benefit. As a territory, its people tend to pay little attention to the partisanship that exists in the mainland US and all of the locally governing parties support vaccination. There's a lot we can learn from Puerto Rico's huge success in almost completely eliminating COVID-19. If all the other parts of the United States could be as effective as this territory has been, then we would well be on our way to putting the pandemic behind us. Robert, we continue to hear from listeners that they enjoy our efforts to expand the material on this podcast beyond COVID-19 and the coronavirus. What's this week's big healthcare story? The most interesting medical breakthrough came from NYU's School of Medicine. The family of a woman who became brain dead wanted to donate her organs for human transplantation. However, for medical reasons, they were not usable. The family asked how her body could be used for research to save the lives of others. Scientists there working with surgeons connected her body to a pig kidney to see if it could replace her own. Her own kidney had stopped working and while her body was kept alive for the next two days, these transplanted kidneys functioned well, despite coming from another species. Often in core species transplantation, there is an intense and immediate organ rejection that occurs. To prevent it, researchers in this particular case had bred a type of pig that doesn't have the gene responsible for the production of a specific sugar that is foreign to the human body. And this experiment showed that by eliminating this sugar from the pig kidney cells, that immediate rejection could be prevented. The success of being able to replace a human organ with one from another species is encouraging, particularly for the 100,000 people on the waiting list 
for a kidney transplant and the more than a dozen people who die every day before one becomes available. However, before listeners become overly optimistic, they should remember that there's many parts to the rejection process and that many of them occur in the subsequent days after that second day when this experiment was terminated and they could not be assessed due to the very short period of observation. This is not the first time interest has peaked in coarse species organ transplantation. Previously, a heart was transplanted from a baboon into a human. It occurred in 1985 and the organ survived and the patient survived for 21 days, but it raised huge ethical issues and resulted in major debate and little has happened since that time. But recently, the ability to modify genes has resurfaced interest in this type of xenotransplantation. But debate about its appropriateness invariably will ensue as the science progresses. Jeremy, with the holiday season just around the corner, how will you and your family celebrate differently this year than in the last? Ravi, 100% will be celebrating differently this year. Um, my family, everyone is fully vaccinated with the exception of the children. Um, I do not envision any masking or social distancing at family get-togethers this year. And I hope I do, don't sound uh, too controversial or offensive in saying this, but I think most people in America are pretty sick of the virus and its restrictions. Um, people don't want to not get together for Thanksgiving or Christmas uh, with masks or, or, or sitting outside or six feet apart. Um, people don't want to do Thanksgiving dinner over Zoom or Skype. Um, the psychological and emotional impact of not seeing family over the holidays is just too much to tolerate when compared to the small risk of death from the virus, especially for those who are fully vaccinated and not at severe risk. Robbie, with the influenza season about to begin, a listener asked if she could get the COVID-19 booster dose and the flu shot on the same day. What's the answer to that one? Jeremy, when it comes to the flu, last year was very unique as a result of social distancing and mask wearing. Across the globe, there was very little influenza disease, less than 10% of normal. This year with travel increasing and more people coming in close contact, public health experts are very worried. The CDC has given approval for people to receive on the same day, both the vaccine against COVID-19 and the one against the flu. The agency recommends getting the shots in different arms or at least an inch apart on the same arm. So far, outside of the possibility of having two sore arms, there haven't been any major issues. One of the challenges this year will be figuring out the exact strains of the influenza virus that will dominate. In general, the US bases its vaccine production on the experience in parts of the Southern Hemisphere. Places like Australia that experience winter when we are still having our summer six months before the flu comes to the Northern Hemisphere. Unlike COVID-19, where the virus mutates slowly, the influenza vaccine must change because the influenza virus is continually changing. 
And since there was so little flu around the globe earlier in the year, we're having to guess more than in the past about which strain will be the one or the ones to come to the United States this winter. In general, prior infection, even from a different influenza strain, offers some protection. But without a flu season last year, there's fear that the intrinsic immunity in young children will be lower this year than it would have been. And for this reason, health policy experts are strongly encouraging flu vaccination for children age six months and older. And they're hoping that the COVID-19 vaccine will be approved for this age group so that pediatricians can combine the two immunizations and maximize the total number of kids protected. In response to the parental concerns about safety, they point out how often kids receive multiple vaccines at the same time without any added risk or complications. Once the season begins, once the flu season begins, differentiating this infection from COVID-19, particularly in the early stages of the disease, will be difficult to do. The two viruses produce very similar symptoms and findings. Given the possibility of a new Merck drug that potentially could avoid serious disease if given early in the infection process of COVID-19, we can expect that frequent testing for both viral infections, which today has a drug that can be given, as well as for COVID-19, where hopefully there will be one, will be a, a common approach from a medical perspective. The current flu vaccines contain two influenza A strains and two B strains. They were designed to provide broad coverage, but as we said, it's too early to be sure how closely they'll match to the specific strains of the influenza virus that we will experience this year. The traditional pattern we see in the United States is for the rhinoviruses, the ones responsible for the common cold to begin in the fall. Then it's followed by the, the respiratory syncytial viruses or the RSV a little later. And then finally influenza comes towards the end of December. So far this year, we're well into the first stage and we're seeing early signs of the second. And this is heightening people's concerns and raising the fears about the public health implications. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth and have a great day.